0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 5th of February 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, I'm joined by Charles Hecker of Control Risks to have a look through the front pages. And we'll check in with our news editor, Chris Chermak, who's quarantining in Kiev. Before we hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck.
1: In story meetings, the debates we have are not just about which topics are important, but how stories can best be told.
0: We'll be telling you lots of stories ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Chinese President Xi Jinping opened the Beijing Winter Olympics on Friday. These games are mixing sport and global politics as few others have since the era of the Cold War. The opening ceremony ended with a member of China's Uyghur minority, whose treatment is the focus of international human rights criticism, helping to light the Olympic cauldron, hours after Xi announced a new strategic alliance with visiting Russian President Vladimir Putin. The US Republican Party has censured US Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for joining Congress's probe of then-President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, calling the January the 6th Capitol attack legitimate political discourse. Cheney and Kinzinger voted to impeach Trump on a charge of incitement of insurrection after last year's deadly riot and are the only Republicans taking part in the House of Representatives' investigation of The attack. And Western Australian officials warned of forecast extreme to catastrophic fire conditions, as a large bushfire burned out of control in the west of the country, forcing families to flee their homes. In the summer of 2019 to 2020, 33 people were killed, including nine firefighters, when wildfires burned more than 17 million hectares, an area nearly half the size of Germany. And that's your Monocle 24 News. It's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers and I'm pleased to say joining me in the studio is Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you Charles. You say you look like you slept under a bridge. I don't think so. Uh, That's very nice of you to say
2: but I think you're being very, very polite. Um, Perhaps it's more like I feel like I slept under a bridge and and, and the the exterior reflects that but good morning Georgina. Good
0: morning Um, and I hope that our coffee and croissant from the cafe has revived you at any rate.
2: A fantastic wake up. Thank you.
0: Uh, The cafe is open. on Chiltern Street do pop in because not only do they have great coffee and croissant and wonderful buns, uh, but it's a great buzzing atmosphere. And of course, you've got Monocle 24 going on in the background. Uh, Charles, Britain has become a laughingstock. stock. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's very, very serious, the fact that, that we have people in charge who who, who really have a, a, a very casual relationship with the truth. But it, it does look like Boris Johnson can't survive this. But what I thought was really interesting is the way that the foreign papers are covering this um, because it, as I say, has just become a joke. And, and what, for me, is particularly fascinating is the way that the media is evolving uh, and that we're using these new forms uh, to... to 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 explore this. So, tell us about the New York Times and what they're doing.
2: So, this is fantastic. Georgina, we are living through a golden age of political satire, and that's in part because the material is just so relentlessly rich. Uh, and, And here's what the New York Times has done, and you're absolutely right to say that following coverage of domestic affairs from international newspapers provides a lot of perspective, and it also provides a certain amount of latitude and freedom of speech that you may not get in the local papers. And so here is the New York Times, which of course is famous as a daily print newspaper, but with a website that today houses a video featuring a British newscaster. Portrayed by an actor. So we just have these fantastic layers of technology, irony, and and, and portrayal. And the headline when you go to the New York Times website is something that you will not see in a British newspaper. And it says in inverted commas, it says, the first thing you need to know about Boris Johnson is he's a liar.
0: Uh, and of course that can't be said in parliament but parliament prevents anybody from outright saying somebody's a liar you can you can allude to their to their casual relationship with the truth but that's about it
2: that's right we've had two members of parliament ejected from the house of commons actually told to head for the door and leave because they called the prime minister a liar and and the rules are against that because i suspect if you could say that then that's all that would happen for day you know for every session in the house of commons um the jonathan Pye... Video. This is the newscaster is called Jonathan Pye. And now you're going to have to remind me of the name of the actor who's portraying him. I think
0: it's Tom Walker. Or- That's right. Yeah.
2: And, and so what he does is he portrays a British journalist talking about the British prime minister, Boris Johnson, and takes viewers of the website through the political scandal, which, of course, is that the prime minister has been basically partying, like it's 1999, while the rest of the country was in lockdown. Mm. And it, it, it's this fantastic journey through partying excess.
0: Well, let's, let's have a flavour of the beginning of this.
2: So you just want me to explain why, why British
3: people are so f***ed off with Boris Johnson, basically. I, in a way that an American audience can understand, right. Without swearing, obviously. Sorry. Uh, let me think. Let me think. Uh, Boris Johnson, a demonstrable liar who's only out for himself? Don't know if that sounds familiar to an American audience. Um, Boris Johnson, a narcissist with shit hair. Um, Again, sound familiar? Actually, I can't say liar, can I? Really? Oh, in in the UK, you can't call them liars. You you have to say, like, oh, he inadvertently misled Parliament. Seriously, I can just come out and say it. Call him a liar. God bless America.
0: Well, we're getting closer and closer in this country to actually calling him a liar because the papers that uh, had once supported him are now almost to a one turning against.
2: It really does look like time is running out for the prime minister. I mean, particularly with the parade of of high-ranking associates and aides from 10 Downing Street walking out the front door or walking out the back door, as the case may be in certain cases. But... um, If you wanted to put a sort of lifeline to the prime minister, you might say that he would last as long as May when we have local elections, where the conservatives will likely get an absolute pasting at the polls, um, but it's looking increasingly difficult that he'll uh, for him to to last that long. Mm.
0: And particularly, I mean, when he becomes the subject of 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 a joke, uh, I mean, all around the world, uh, every paper in the world seems to be picking this up and just going, Britain, what have you done? And I, I think it's really interesting to see how we use humor in these situations. And in fact, the very latest edition of our, our magazine, uh, it's an amusing special report. Are you joking? It has on the on the cover, and it's all about cartoonists, uh, satirists and, and comics shaking up their nations, uh, even if it ends up with them risking jail, which, which many of them, not in this country usually, um, uh, do. But, I mean, so, so that's... Um, we really explore that in the magazine. But I am thrilled to see the New York Times not only doing this, but, but, as we said, exploring different ways. So this is an opinion piece that's actually on video, and I think we're increasingly seeing this shift away or, indeed, a, a, a parallel alongside print
2: you know l- lest we think that this is all just a laugh and 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 you know thank heavens for comedy because you're absolutely right that if you weren't laughing you would be crying which is sort of the, the what we say most of the time in these sorts of situations and 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 this is a fantastic video and, and journalistic experiment um, towards the end of the piece, I think we have to bear in mind that that the, the satirist Pie uh, becomes incredibly serious. Well, and-
0: we should we should listen to, to this bit towards the end uh, because it does get it just gets almost uh, yeah almost hysterical. But really, he's making such valid points.
3: The British government is full of them entitled arseholes sorry sorry entitled assholes with a bentley and a nanny making decisions for us all about things that they will never understand aristocrats running the fifth largest economy in the world whilst allowing 30 percent of british children to live in relative poverty where the rich get richer and the poor literally get Hungrier. Millionaires who spend their time in government giving tax breaks and PPE contracts to their rich mates. Cannibals. Self-serving parasites. Tapeworms in tiaras swimming through the intestines of the state, sucking all the goodness out of it
0: for their own repugnant gratification. Tapeworms in tiaras. He's not really mincing words. (laughs) (laughs) It's that fantastic
2: British delivery. It is just unbeatable.
0: I just And I know something, a good drug for tapeworms and tiaras, of course, and you know what it is, ivermectin. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Moving swiftly on. Uh,
0: Charles, we're going to join you again a little bit later in the programme, but I think right now what we'd like to do is check in with somebody who I hope is not taking ivermectin (laughs) for his condition. Uh, He's been diagnosed with COVID, uh, and he is currently quarantining in a Kiev hotel room. He is our news editor, Chris Chermak. Good morning to you, Chris.
4: Good morning, George. Georgina, that was quite an introduction.
0: How are you feeling?
4: (laughs) I'm feeling absolutely fine, to be honest, Georgina. It's been a relatively mild case for me, even though it was, of course, quite a surprise to to test positive. That being said, Ukraine is facing its highest record daily cases uh, this week of the entire pandemic uh, and you know when we arrived here about a week and a half ago i still remember that one of the first people we spoke to at a market where we asked about sort of the current tensions with with russia and how they were feeling about it basically just told us, well, we're still kind of worried about COVID here. And I've had more of an, you know, they've had more of an impact and seen more people affected by that than by the conflict. So it really kind of brings that home to you again, doesn't it? When it, when it affects you yourself after uh, about a week or 10 days of being here.
0: And I mean, you're, you're stuck in your hotel room now.
4: I am stuck in the hotel room. What what can I do? They're very nice to me here, though. I am getting some room service. And I'm still continuing to keep an eye on Kiev and Ukraine as much as I can, doing some remote interviews, (laughs) Uh, those kinds of things that we can do from here. So uh, yes, life goes on, as it were. And I'll uh, I'll be here until I test negative and uh, can get out and about again. I look forward to it. It's a beautiful city here. So it's a shame not to be able to go out this weekend. I look forward to getting to see a bit more of it once uh, once
0: But it does mean that we've been able to keep your nose to the grindstone because there are absolutely no excuses. You can't say you're too busy. (laughs) And one of the things you've been doing is making your regular contribution to our Monocle Minute. Uh, And you wrote in your Saturday morning column today that Kiev is seen a bit like the new Berlin. So this was the first time, in fact, that you've been to Kiev, but you have lived in Berlin. So what are your impressions?
4: Well, yes, that that is one of the impressions that Germans will say who come here as well that they feel like Kiev is uh, the new Berlin, and it is it is quite striking just in the sense that Kiev, especially, has very much this sort of Bohemian uh, flair to it with sort of smaller shops, cafes, restaurants, uh, art galleries popping up uh, in different places. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that reminds me a little bit of, of Berlin when I lived there. I lived in Berlin in the sort of latter stages, if you will, of its development in the sort of yeah. 2010s. Uh, it, Kiev feels like much more what Berlin would have been like in the early 2000s perhaps, or even the late 1990s uh, in some ways. One person though that I spoke to here, interestingly said that he felt Berliners had had gotten quite quite lazy, uh, frankly, with, with the development of their city. And then he felt like there was more of an energy here in Kiev, in terms of how to remake the city, I think one of the interesting things will, of course, be whether Kiev also falls into this trap of, of gentrification, if you will, that so many cities as they develop uh, fall into or whether Kiev will find some ways to kind of maintain that bohemian style and flair that it currently has.
0: And I mean, there are a lot of new businesses sprouting up in, in the last few years. Why is that? Where do you think this energy comes from?
4: Well, what's interesting is that there certainly, from people you speak to here, there is an energy that came directly from the protests in 2014, the Euromaidan protests that saw a revolution here that really shifted uh, Ukraine to look. More westwards, more towards Europe, deposing a more Russian-friendly government, and we've we've talked a lot, of course, also on the on this show about the politics and the current tensions. But it is also interesting what that has done to the business community, and particularly younger people you speak to here, who were encouraged by that to also confront some of the corruption that, that exists in Ukraine, the sort of oligarchic system that has always been around here since uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so that's really where a lot of these new businesses, new restaurants and, and shops are coming from. It's younger people that have developed the confidence that they can strike out on themselves and sort of challenge this oligarchic system. It's not always easy. Uh, the oligarchs do still exist here. They do still have a fair amount of power over the political system. But many young people at least feel now's the time to try. They have to deal with the corruption. They might have to pay a bribe every now and then in order to, to get things moving here. Uh, they will face some obstruction. So it's not necessarily easy. But the difference really seems to be, especially here in the capital, in that mentality that you are able to go about creating something if you want to, trying. You might fail, of course, as well, if you open a restaurant or a business here, but at least you're trying and you're seeing really the the fruits of that in terms of the amount of people that have tried to open a new a new business or a shop here in the last five, six, seven years, including the hotel I'm currently staying in where we spoke with the founder who himself is, is 27 uh, years old and founded this hotel only a few years ago, one of the first sort of art hotels uh, in Kiev He, too, came quite recently in that sense to Ukraine. And and many people feel such a passion for trying to develop the community, uh, be a part of the community here and create something new. Uh, And Chris, just
0: finally, these people that you're talking about, I get the impression from you that they don't feel they're on the brink of war.
4: No, they don't necessarily feel that they're on the brink of war. Um, there, There is certainly a sort of, uh, as I've spoken about before a little bit, that a dual reality, as it were, here. People realize that they, they could be on the brink of war, but at the same time they just continue to, to have fun and continue to have evenings of of talk. Uh, and, and if you go out to dinners here, yes, it's a topic of conversation, of course. But it's it's not necessarily the the, the biggest topic of conversation. Uh, also, because people have so many memories of other moments. So, if when I was at a, a dinner with sort of you know a, a lot of Ukrainians, including Ukrainian aid worker and and friends of his, yes, we talked a little about the current tensions. But they were also telling us so many stories about the protests all the way back to 2014, making makeshift kitchens in the in Maidan Square, and sort of uh, another politician who was telling us about working the night shifts even though she had a, a child as well instead of going going to the square overnight so many people just focus on the fact that they have been dealing with this for so long that they do they keep it in their minds. Another person that I spoke to said there is a certain amount of repressed stress, as she called it here, uh, but that can also translate in a way to this feeling that, well, we might as well go out we might as well party and have fun and we'll we'll drink as if the Russians are invading tomorrow, sort of feeling. <laughs>
0: the ball on the eve of the Battle of Waterloo, absolutely. Um, Chris, thank you so much for, for- for, for talking to us, uh, and uh, good luck in your hotel room. For how much longer have you got?
4: Well, I have to test negative uh, twice before I can uh, release myself, if you will, from the self-isolation. So hopefully Monday, Tuesday, we will we will see how things go. Of course, it's not not that easy to predict with COVID, but no. hopefully soon enough.
0: <laughs> Chris Chermak in quarantine in Kiev. Well, Charles Hecker, who's still with me, uh, partner at Control Risk. Uh, Charles, the the people in in Kiev may may not be feeling it. How is the Moscow Times reporting on the current situation?
2: That's right. So the Moscow Times is noting, of course, that the Beijing Winter Olympics are underway, and President Putin has traveled to Beijing, one of the highest-ranking, world leaders to attend the Olympic Games this year and had a summit meeting, essentially, with Xi Jinping. And Chris will be relieved to know that President Putin did not choose the moment of the opening ceremony to invade Ukraine, as as it was a slightly wild theory that was out there, that Putin would do that much as he did in 2008 with Georgia. Um, It was absolutely inconceivable, genuinely, that that would happen. But um, Chris will be relieved to know that, indeed, It didn't. But this sort of increasing closeness between Putin and Xi Jinping, as covered in the Moscow Times today, is concerning to the West. Um, There is a tightening energy closeness and partnership. Uh, There is support for confining NATO. Um, You know, I don't think that Beijing would support Russia if it actually did militarily invade Ukraine. Um, but I think that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin share similar viewpoints on Western aggression and containing it. And the fact that they are in the stands together in the Olympic Stadium is unsettling to a lot of observers.
0: No, absolutely. It, it certainly is. I'd like us to cross now to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who's talking about, about well, about storytelling.
1: It's the smallest things that stick. A seemingly passing comment in a story that lodges. For the past couple of weeks, I've been working with a French journalist on a report about the trial of the men accused of aiding the terrorist attacks that rocked Paris on the 13th of November 2015. There's a section about testimonies given by survivors, including those who were caught up in the massacre at the Bataclan Theatre. How did these people get out alive? Often, the writer explains, it was all down to a decision as simple as stepping away to have a cigarette, to order a drink, then a bullet that would have ended one life instead killed the person who just a second before was standing behind them. In that detail, you glimpse how terrorism works. It's unfathomable, unrelenting randomness. It's the same in the long read in our current issue about Ukraine, written by Kiev resident Artem Chek. He explains the geopolitics of the region perfectly well, but it's when he mentions that most people have a bag of clothes, money, toiletries, packed and ready to go, that you suddenly see how Russia has destabilised Kiev and you have a city of people primed to leave in a second. The unimaginable suddenly becomes imaginable. How could you wake up every day living with this numbing pressure, I found myself thinking. The process of writing, editing, is not linear. There are many routes you can take through a story. But somehow, you have to make people care to find time in their busy lives to focus on what you're saying, and without sentimentalising or overplaying your hand to get their, well, your attention. And that goes for a story about the downfall of Kabul or review of a new hotel. I've been thinking about how we tell stories, what we choose to report on, a lot this week. Firstly, the March issue that we're currently working on will not only carry our Paris trial report, but also celebrate 15 years of Monocle. As part of this, we've been going back to people and places that featured in issue one to ask, well, what happened next? It's brought back to life the myriad decisions that went into making that launch magazine. And as you will get to see, the topics and themes that we were concerned with back then are just as pertinent today. How do we keep craft industries alive? How can journalists be protected? What is the ambition of China in Africa? How can cities stay true to their characters? It surprises even me how fresh it all still looks. The issue still stands as a bit of a manifesto for what Monocle is all about. But there's a second reason I've been forced to reflect on what makes a Monocle story and what we can leave other people to report on. This is because we have taken on a team of new editors in recent months, and I need to articulate our outlook on the world, something that has, by now, just become a reflex for me. And because it's not about following, say, a party political line, it's sometimes hard to explain the nuances, the point we are aiming for. I don't bump up against other writers and editors very often, but while I want to host a variety of views on page, on air, I also want to make sure that we try, in the end, to come good on our key beliefs without compromise. We should introduce you to people with simple fixes for making better buildings, businesses. We should seek to highlight opportunity, even in difficult times. That our silence can say more than us joining in with the hecklers that we must always look beyond the Anglosphere and its more destructive cultural debates, and we should make sure that people smile every now and then too. It's why in story meetings, the debates we have are not just about which topics are important, but how stories can best be told, and also why they matter. But here's the good thing, in these conversations, in the stories that are coming across my desk, And as we reflect on Monocle's journey to here, the role that Monocle can play has never seemed more important, so full of potential. What's next for Monocle, people often ask. Well, after this past week, revisiting our founding issue, it's clear. Sticking to our guns, telling great stories, and not falling in with the hand-wringing competitors. It's not linear, it's fallible, but it's not bad, you know. And our real winning card? A global audience that keeps us on our feet, is still up for debate and relishes fresh perspectives. Make sure that you get your anniversary issue by taking out a subscription.
0: Many thanks to Andrew Tuck. there, our editor-in-chief. And uh, as he says, of course, we're telling stories and we're trying to do it not from a, a, a kind of euro, through a euro lens necessarily. One of the stories we've been reporting on today is uh, the fact that on Friday, uh, the Republicans censured Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. I hope I'm pronouncing his name rightly. Uh, and uh, of course, those are the only two who've been giving evidence uh, looking at the July the 6th insurrection. Well, that story's moved on, Charles, hasn't it? Um, because uh, Mike Pence has now weighed in. What is the Washington Post saying about this?
2: That's right. The Washington Post takes the story that you discussed at the very top of the broadcast a little bit further because of something that happened just, the, just yesterday. Um, and, and it's evidence of a potential serious rift in the Republican Party, among all of the other rifts that are taking place in political parties in the US and all around the world. The the headline in the Washington Post says, as GOP censures Cheney and Kinzinger, and I think you are pronouncing that correctly, Georgina, Pence says, in quotes, President Trump is wrong. And what the Washington Post is referring to is a speech that the former vice president gave to the Federalist Society at a meeting in Florida where he out loud broadcast live said that President Trump was wrong in the way he thought that the vice president could interrupt and and suspend the counting of electoral college ballots during the ratification of the presidential elections. Um, the post then goes on to say that Trump erupted in response and said that Mike Pence was wrong and has misread the Constitution and has misread the law and he managed to take a whole bunch of, make a whole bunch of personal insults at a whole slew of Republican politicians, um, the Republican Party is going to have to reconcile what's happening um, in its extreme branches and that is um, they're, they're casting some of its members out and other members are saying, hang on a minute, let's look at this you know, realistically.
0: Well, Charles, this takes us right back to the top of the programme when we were discussing Boris Johnson and the, the split that's looming within the Conservative Party. I mean, these two men are essentially very, very similar. It's not just the hair or the easy relationship with the truth. They are splitting their parties along these various populist lines and, and there is very much a, a parallel to be drawn, isn't there?
2: There is. There's, there are parallels and contrasts. I mean, I think the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom is 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 fairly famous for eating its own. Um, The Republican Party in the United States previously had been known for its incredible discipline, Um, and that discipline is, I I was about to say, fraying at the edges, but it's not. It's now um, an incredible gulf, and it's on very public display, and and this is one of the first times, perhaps, in recent memory, at least, um, that we've had this kind of intra-party war, Uh, and the only problem, really, is that the same thing is happening in the Democrats between its more conservative and more progressive wings, so lots of intra-party struggle happening on all ends of the pub- of the political spectrum.
0: And really all you can do is laugh. <laughs> if you're going to keep your sanity. You keep know? the
2: satire coming, is all I can say, and we'll be here to broadcast about it on Saturdays.
0: <laughs> and, of course, you can read about it too in the latest issue of Monocle magazine, which takes a... A slightly comedic look, shall we say, at the world. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to my guest, Charles Hecker, also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.